This week we're in Haggai. So if that's the one you've read, good. If you haven't read it, well, catch up with us. Um, And we move from pre-captivity of Israel to post-captivity. All the prophets we've looked at so far in this series have been before the captivity, before Israel were taken in to Babylon. But now we move into the time after the restoration when they're coming back to the land. And it's a different time, different era, different set of hopes and expectations. It's a time of hope and restoration for the people of Israel. Although Haggai is prophesying in a time of discouragement for the returned exiles. As I was thinking about this this morning, I was reminded um, that it's 40 40 years now since I was baptized in the Spirit. Incredible amount of time. I don't feel that old. (laughs) But in August 1975, there I was at a camp meeting and the Holy Spirit fell on on the meeting. And the next thing I knew, I was flat on my face, speaking in tongues. And God was moving powerfully amongst those of us who were there. And there were heady days back in the 70s and perhaps the 80s as well, where there was expectation, there was hope. God was doing something new. God was building something. God was challenging and changing his church. We didn't know where this was going to go. There was hope that the revival would come. And that the land would be changed. And here I am 40 years later, and things in the country as a whole are not better, they're worse. Things in the church have changed, but perhaps we haven't yet realized all that we set out with on that journey. And it's not disappointment in God, perhaps it's disappointment in myself and in the church. But we've not grasped, we've not achieved, we've not, the hopes of those days have not yet been realized. And that's really the situation that these, these people who were restored um, to the land were, were facing. After 70 years in exile, and Cyrus the emperor had, had said, you could go back to your land and, and build, rebuild the temple. And even though there were hundreds of thousands of them in exile, about 40,000 of them came back, so just a small minority. And they got back to the land, and they found it completely devastated, hopeless. Completely destroyed. And so they set about trying to rebuild the temple. And all they did was build the foundations. And then they got distracted because there was discouragement. There was opposition. And they stopped building. And so all that hope, all that expectation of setting out back from Babylon and coming back to the land was just lost. They built an altar. They laid some foundations for the temple. But when opposition came, when the money ran out, they discontinued the work. And it stayed like that for 14 years. And instead, they set about building houses for themselves. And these are described in chapter 1 as panelled houses, i.e. panelled with wood on the inside. Because the Babylonians had chopped down all the trees when they invaded the land, wood was a rare commodity. And so they were using this precious resource that they'd gone up into the mountains to get, not to build the temple of the Lord, but just to build their own houses. Using their resources on building their own personal property. And that's the way we find them at the beginning of Haggai. 
Haggai starts to prophesy in around 520, so about 15 years after they've come back to the land. And he starts to encourage them and stir them up to start that work of rebuilding. Don't let what you've come here for be distracted. Don't let it fall away. Keep going. That's the message of Haggai. And indeed, in response to his words, and he prophesied only for a period of about three months, in response to his words, within four years, the temple was rebuilt. They did rise up. They did do it, in spite of local opposition. And you can read all of that, the story of that in Ezra, chapters 1 to 6. And it's against that backdrop that Haggai and also Zechariah were prophesying. So what did Haggai prophesy to stir up Zerubbabel to restart this work? Well, that is the book of Haggai. And essentially there are five prophecies in this book that were all given in this period of about three months. And they concern a depressed people, a determined people, a discouraged people, a defiled people, and a designated prince. And that's how we'll look at them. So let's read verses 1 to 11 first of all. In the second year of Darius the king, that's not Darius the Great, by the way, just as an aside. On the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, this people says the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your panelled houses while this house lies desolate? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You sow much but harvest little. You eat but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink but there's not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing but no one is warm enough. He who earns, earns wages to be put in a purse with holes in. How I can relate to that one. (laughs) Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains, bring wood and rebuild the temple, that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house, which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew, the earth has withheld its produce. I call for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. So the people were depressed. They'd come back in hope of rebuilding the nation, but it had all gone wrong. And now they were just scratching out a living, and instead of fulfilling their calling... They were just concentrating on their own houses. And God said to them, basically, because you've done that, the promises, the blessing associated with being in this place, in the land, I've withheld from you. There was a covenant between God and Israel that said, if you're in the land and if you're in obedience, I'll bless you. I'll bless your crops. I'll bless the work of your hands. I'll bless your fruit, the fruit of your trees. I'll bless everything you have. But it's covenantal. It was by agreement. And because they weren't doing what they were called to do, God says, I've withheld the blessing from you. And so they were depressed. They were just scratching around for a living. They were reinforcing their own houses, making them look pretty. But there wasn't enough. The crops were failing. The resources of the promised land were not sustaining them. Surely they were the blessed people. But they got distracted. They'd lost their way. The issue for them was that their priorities were out of line. 
and their thinking was faulty. Some of them were saying, as we see in verse 2, it's not the time to build the house of God yet. We're not settled enough in the land. We haven't achieved enough. We've got to make our houses nice and strong and and reinforce our community. It's not the time to, to get on with the Lord's work right now. We've got too many other distractions in our lives. There's always too much to do. I haven't got time to go and, and, and serve the Lord. I've got too much to do with my family and with, with my home. And yet, that was the very purpose for which they'd come back from Babylon. It was for the house of the Lord. And it was because of their disobedience to the purpose that, that, that God was not blessing them in the promised land. If we want to be blessed by God, we need to put him and the building of his house as number one priority in our lives. God's criticism of them was that they prioritized their own houses over his house. And if we concentrate on our own houses and neglect the house of God, we may benefit materially, but we'll miss out on the blessing of God in our lives and we will not fulfill our calling. Modern values tell us that we should get a good job, to get a mortgage, to buy a home. We should concentrate on our children and make their concerns our number one priority while increasing our material security and setting aside provision for the future. None of those things are wrong in themselves. But if we do all of that and neglect the house of God, we rob ourselves of God's blessing, of his provision and his interaction in our lives. Hence God through Haggai says to the people, consider your ways. In other words, think about the way you're living and get your priorities sorted. Why? So that I can bless you. Do you want to be blessed this morning? Make God number one. Get him as the priority of your life. Get his calling upon you as number one focus. Everything else can fall into place around that. But he has to be number one. And that's the only way the blessing of God will come. I believe there's nothing more tragic in this world than a person with a calling from God who either gets distracted or who never lifts their game enough to fulfill it. God has placed a calling on everybody here, on everybody's life. It may not be something grandiose like building a temple, but he's gifted and called you for work in his house. Don't miss out on your calling. Don't miss out by being so distracted with the concerns of this life that you miss your destiny in God. It's too important. And it's the means for God to bless you and enrich you and fulfill you. So they were a a depressed people because they were missing out on the blessing of God because they'd become distracted away from their calling. Verse 12, a determined people. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and all the remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people showed reverence for the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. In response to Haggai's words about considering their ways, they responded positively, and they started to get back on God's, God's agenda. 
They took up the challenge to begin building the house of the Lord once more. And in the heart of the passage, Haggai gives them a very, very simple word from the Lord. I am with you. I am with you. And sometimes that reminder that God is with us is all that we need. He's with us. He's on our side. He's not out there somewhere. He's here. He's alongside us. He's on our case. He's walking hand in hand with us. God is with you. That gentle reminder by the Holy Spirit whispered in our hearts to remind us that we are never on our own because he is with us. And I believe someone needs to hear that word this morning. God is with you. He has not left you. He will never desert you. He is with you. Take hold of it. Believe it. Trust him. Know that he is with you. Every step of the way. And that simple word for the people here. Encourage them. And strengthen them. And help them to keep on going in what they've been called to do. Which was to rebuild the temple. Chapter 2 verse 1 to 9. On the 21st of the seventh month, that's just a month later, the word of the Lord came to Haggai, the prophet, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah. Why do they have to have his name and title every time? And to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, they should have just said Zerubbabel, shouldn't they, and Joshua. Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? But now take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and all you people of the land. Take courage, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. As for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more in a little while I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. And I'll shake all the nations and they will come with the wealth of the nations. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I'll give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. And so there they were, they were working on this temple. And some of the people who had been in the land before the captivity, because the last ones who went out of captivity, into captivity was about 87, uh, 587 BC. So these were the old men, they'd probably come back 60 years later, 70 years later, and were saying, well, don't think much of that building. You should have seen the previous, you should have seen Solomon's temple, that was fantastic. Don't think much of the way we're doing things today. You should have been there back in the 70s. When it was, God was really working with us. <laughs> what do you think you're doing building a building like that? That's not giving glory to God. And, and that's what was being said amongst the people. Don't think much of that temple. But they were doing the best they could with what they had. And God wasn't worried about the quality of it right now. He was saying, you just carry on in the purpose of God that I've given you to do right now. Let me think about the glory. Let me deal with the glory of this house because I'm going to release resources to you. And I'm going to release the treasures for you that's going to make this house glorious. You just do in obedience what I've given you to do. 
And that's what God calls each one of us to do. Do whatever your hand finds to do and do it with all your might. And let God deal with the rest. Let God bring the blessing. Let God bring the glory. Let God bring the enthusiasm and the encouragement. Let God make this house, the the latter glory of this house, greater than the former glory. Just do what your hand finds to do. And do it with all your might. And so Haggai prophesies once more. First of all, the Lord reminding the leaders, Zerubbabel and Joshua, and all the people, be strong. And this is repeated three times in this passage for emphasis. In spite of all that appears to be going against them, the instruction is to be determined to carry through what they've begun. And this is similar to the word of God to Joshua, the old Joshua, not this Joshua, just before he led them into the promised land. Be strong, be courageous, keep going, do it, because I'm with you. And sometimes when we face difficulties, when we confront difficult circumstances or things that seem bigger than us, or when we face distraction or discouragement, it's steely determination that we're in the purposes of God that will pull us through to help us overcome our discouragement. Let's consider that word discouragement for a moment. The center part of the word discouragement is courage. Courage. So anything that brings discouragement is that which robs us of our courage, that which removes our courage from us. When facing such things, God says, be strong, because I'm with you. I'm with you. Don't be discouraged. Don't allow your courage to be robbed. But know that because I'm with you, you can stand and you can um, prevail and you can overcome because I'm there. I'm on your side. Remove this from courage and be encouraged. Be filled with courage because I am with you, says the Lord. So when you feel discouraged, be strong and know that God is with you. There's also a second part to this prophecy where Haggai tells them that the glory of the latter house will be greater than the glory of the former house. And he promises peace for Jerusalem and that the wealth of nations will come to it. And this is in line with the prophecies of the other prophets. And there was an immediate application of this so that by New Testament times, this temple with all the Herod-funded refinements was indeed magnificent. It actually was completed, finally, all the embellishments of the temple were completed in 66 AD. Unfortunately, the whole lot was knocked down in 70 AD by the Romans. But by the time of 66 AD, it was a glorious building, and it was still pretty glorious when Jesus entered it. And the glory of that latter house was greater than the glory of the former house. It was huge, it was vast, it was beautiful. All the nations would come to it to worship. And into that place, Jesus walked. So there was an immediate application, which in the hundreds of years that followed this, this book, were, per, were fulfilled perfectly. However, there's also a future fulfillment of this prophecy, which will only be fulfilled when Israel's true glory comes into the temple. And that's when Jesus himself returns to it. And the writer to the Hebrews quotes these verses in 12, 26, 27 and tells us that the Lord is going to shake the earth again. And the kingdom of which we are a part of that cannot be shaken 
will stand. So when God does shake the earth at the end times, his kingdom will stand and nothing will prevail against it. It's his people, his living temple, that ultimately will display his glory in the earth. And at that time, that will be a greater glory than any temple made with stones. Because where does the glory rest right now? In you and in me. And when the glory fills us, when the glory of God fills us, then the, great, the glory of the latter house is greater than the former of the glory, glory of the former house. It's greater than the building built with hands. It's greater than the building that men can look at and admire because the glory in you is the glory that's brought salvation, has brought healing and has brought deliverance. It's the glory of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Next we have a defiled people, chapter 2, verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask now the priest for a ruling. If a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches bread with his fold or cooked food, wine, oil or any other food, will it become holy? And the priest answered, no. Then Haggai said, if one who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these, will the latter become unclean? The priest answered, it will become unclean. And Haggai said, so is this people, and so is this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so is every work of their hands, and what they, have, that what they offer here is unclean. Now, but now do, consider from this day onward, before one stone was placed on another in the temple of the Lord. From that time when one came to agree grain heap of 20 measures, there would only be 10. And when one came to a vat, a wine vat, to draw 50 measures, there would only be 20. I smote you and every work of your hands with blasting wind, mildew and hail, yet you did not come back to me, declares the Lord. Do consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day when the temple of the Lord was founded, consider, is the seed still in the barn, even including the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree? It has not borne fruit yet from this day. I will bless you. And in this section, Haggai brings the people a set of questions. The first one is, if you put dirty things with clean things, do the dirty things make the clean things dirty or do the clean things make the dirty things clean? And the answer was, the dirty things make the clean things dirty. Next he asked, can consecrated things make unconsecrated things consecrated? The answer was, no, unconsecrated things can't make consecrated things consecrated. (laughs) We can make a tongue twister out of this. (laughs) The message he was giving to the people was that although they were building a consecrated thing, the temple, they themselves were unclean indulging in some sin or other. And they were in danger of defiling that which they were building. And the sin is unspecified, but it seems that they got the message. Up until this point, despite them starting the work of rebuilding the temple, they were still not experiencing God's blessing on their crops that had been withheld because of their previous disobedience about building the temple. However, once they got the message and did something about it, the response comes from heaven. Once they heard the message that they needed to clean up their act, then the the response comes from heaven from this day on. I will bless you. And God desires to bless each one of us. Now I'm not talking necessarily materially here, although he may do that, but his desire is to enrich our lives and make us all that was in his heart. 
However, sin can hold that back. Do we want the fullness, the abundant life that Jesus promised? Then deal with sin issues. What it needs is repentance. That's saying sorry and choosing not to continue to do those things. It may not bring immediate blessing. It may not be easy. But as we walk these things out, God's promise is he will bless us. If we cover them up and carry on on with them, he will not. And so the answer is again, consider your ways. Is there stuff that you're doing? Is there secret sin? Is there internet porn? Is there um, uh, deceit, dishonesty of any kind? Deal with it. It can be a hindrance to being blessed. Be honest. Be right with God. Walk in righteousness. We're not looking for perfection here. That's preserved for later. But we're walking for open, honest obedience to the Lord. And if we can do that with an open heart, then God will bless us. And God will encourage us. And God will lift us up. Consider your ways. But seek his kingdom. And the last section, 20 to 23. And then the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of the kingdoms of the nations. And I will overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders will go down, everyone by the sword of another. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant, declares the Lord, and I'll make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. And this last section is a word directly for Zerubbabel. God sets forth that he's in control of this world, that kings and countries only have power at his command and by his allowance. And just as this is true, so God will fulfill the calling of Zerubbabel. And he says, I'll make you a signet ring on my hand. And this means essentially that God will advance him to the position he wants, regardless of what kings and and other people want to do. And he will put him in the position he wants and will reign through him. And essentially God was telling Zerubbabel that through him, the royal line would be reestablished. He was the grandson or great-grandson, can't remember off the top of my head, of Jehoiachin, uh, one of the last kings of Israel. So he was of the royal line. But of course, it's through Zerubbabel that Jesus himself traced his ancestry. And so the the, the promise that Zerubbabel would be a signet ring on the hand of the Lord follows through the generation. So Jesus becomes the king that reestablishes the kingly line. And the promise to Zerubbabel is fulfilled. And so... Even in the midst of his obedience and he's rising up to fulfill his calling, God gives him promises not just for himself but for the future and for ultimately the salvation that comes from God to all mankind. And in looking at this book, we're reminded to put God as our number one priority, to know that he is with us and will bless us if we align our values and priorities to his. He has a calling for each one of us to fulfill. Don't miss out on your calling through complacency or distraction. Decide from this day on that you will serve the Lord with all that you are, with all that you have. And so there is a challenge in this book for each one of us. And again, it comes down to consider your ways. Think about what you're doing. Don't just drift along. Set things right. 
and change from this day forward. Now, I spoke at the beginning about the 40 years and that sense of disappointment in some ways, not with God, but with what's happened. And the people were experiencing that disappointment. They'd come back for purpose and it hadn't happened. But what was the word of the Lord? Just keep on faithfully doing the work. And that's where I've come to. I may not see all that I want to see, but I'm going to work for the sake of the kingdom to see all that God can do and will do through me in my generation and maybe pass the baton on to another generation who, can, who will see the fullness of all of that promise. So let's set our hearts to work for his kingdom, to build his house and to make him number one. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, Lord God, that you can speak to us through 2,500-year-old prophets. And I just pray, Lord God, that each one of us might align our lives to you and to your purposes. That we might not miss out on our calling and upon our destiny. But that you would work out your purposes in our lives and in our community for the sake of your kingdom. Amen.